This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by Gates Wildlife Control and the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of May 4th, 2015, and this is Michael Howie welcoming you to episode 226 of Defender Radio. Anger and frustration are common for us animal advocates. And this week, we're talking with someone who can help us by teaching us what questions we should be asking ourselves. Deb Ozarko finished college and got a diploma in design, communications, and advertising. She worked in corporate and studio settings. Deb Ozarko completed an Ironman triathlon. Deb Ozarko was an aggressive, outspoken activist. And yet, none of these things are how Deb Ozarko defines herself today. In an incredible journey from grief and anger to compassion and hope, Deb transformed her life. Her story, and the many things she learned in this lifelong lesson, are spoken of during her popular The Unplugged podcast, her book The Status Quo Crusher, and through her blog. Deb wants to see a revolution of love and she joined Defender Radio to discuss her life lessons, plans, and hopes with us in an in-depth and revealing interview. I think it's very interesting who you are and what you do, but to get to that point, before we really talk about where you are today, we need to talk about where you came from. Um, Mm. So I've read through your your website, I've read through your uh, beautiful book. Can you share with us sort of the story of who Deb Ozarko was and how you got to where you are today? Wow. Start with a big question, eh? Mm -hmm. Just just unload it like that. Okay. All right. Um, Well, I've always been a, a pretty sensitive, empathic, introverted type. So the sensitivity is kind of key for who I've always been and still am today and how I've learned how to kind of manage, I guess, that throughout the years. Um, so I've always had a really deep compassion for animals, a really strong connection to the planet and a really profound um, love for life, really, is, is the only way to describe it. One thing that I've always been connected to as well, though, is the pain that's in this world. Um, So as a kid, I was one of these kids who went out and I would clean up the park just because I loved the planet so much. I'd pick up garbage. I was always, you know, I was one of these kids who rescued stray animals, injured birds, that sort of thing. That sensitivity has always been with me. Um, Again, though, I'm bringing bringing it back to the pain that led me to uh, when I was in my teenage years, there was just too much pain. I couldn't handle it. And I was also at a point in my life where I was noticing all of the judgment in the world and how the feelings that I had, the emotions that I had were labeled and some were considered good. Some were not considered good. It was good to be happy. It was not so good to be angry. It was, um, you know, good to express joy, but not anger. And so, Suppressing these emotions, these natural emotions, uh, led to bulimia. And so I, uh, that was my first struggle with an addictive personality. And so I went through 10 years struggling with bulimia and it tore me apart. One day I just looked in the mirror and I said, who is this? Who, who is this person that I'm looking at that's, that, that's doing this to herself? 
And something switched within me. And from one day to the next, I stopped. And I'd gone through, uh, you know, I'd seen psychologists and psychotherapists and none, none of these people were able to help because it was something that was internal within me that I needed to, to address. And it wasn't until I went into my own pain that I was able to understand that that was really the key for healing and for expansion. And, um, and then fast forward throughout my life, uh, you know, the, the, the pain just was, it's a constant. I think we can all relate to that. You know, there's, there's this, uh, this dichotomy of pain and joy and pain and joy. And so there's, there's been a constant theme. The Grim Reaper has kind of followed me around throughout life. Like I lost my father at a fairly early age. I lost my mother very tragically five years ago. And that was really the, the biggest impetus for change in my life. Um, but I've also lost friends uh, to car accidents and suicide. And, uh, you know, it's just been, it's been a constant in my life. Grief has been a constant in my life, whether I'm grieving people that I love animals that I love, you know, soulmates that have been in my life, or whether I'm grieving the clear cutting, the poisoning of the oceans, factory farming, and, you know, just the exorbitant violence that we cause towards animals and one another. So just being a sensitive empath, all of this pain has always been overwhelmed me. And it led me to a path of activism. That was my outlet for all of this pain. So if it wasn't bulimia, then it was, um, it was something else. I, I actually got into drinking for a little while as well. And that was my, you know, once I had moved through the bulimia, I became a drinker. So that addictive personality was still there, but it was really just an escape for the pain that I was in. And, and then the activism just started to evolve from there. But the activism wasn't really coming from a healthy point. It was, or it was coming from a, a, a projection of the pain that was within me. And it wasn't until the death of my mother five years ago that I really started to examine my life. And again, I had moved through the bulimia, I had moved through the, the drinking issue. And I was kind of, I kind of let the negative form of activism that was really hurting me more than helping me, I'd let that go at that point as well. And what I did instead as a distraction, I took on an Ironman. And so, and it's not like I just jumped off the couch and did an Ironman. I was also, I was a triathlete at that point already, but it just felt like, okay, now I'm ready for an Ironman. But what I was really doing was just distracting myself yet again from the pain of my mother's death because it was just too much to handle. And so um, throughout the whole year that I was, well, actually it was about eight months through the whole training process. It was brutal. I was constantly injured. I was always exhausted. I did not enjoy, really, I didn't enjoy the entire process. I got to the start line. I was injured, um, but I, you know, I pressed myself through this race and, and I did it. And I really didn't even feel like I was in my body for the whole time because I didn't realize at that time that I was carting around a truckload of grief that was really removing me from my body and my, you know, it was just my, my soul was just, it was, it was gone. I was in too much pain. And when I finally crossed the finish line of that Ironman, all I wanted to do, I didn't care about the medal and the hat and the shirt and all the stuff that comes along with it. I didn't care about the title. I didn't care about anything. I just wanted to go home and be by myself. And, and so that's really what I did. And then what happened after that is I fell into 
a really, really deep depression, really deep. And it's, um, I've done some research now and it's actually called a dark night of the soul. And so I've experienced a dark night of the soul for, for six weeks. I could barely get out of bed. I could barely feed myself. I didn't even want to get dressed. I didn't want to shower. I didn't want to do anything. I just didn't, I didn't even want to live. And it was, um, it was the most painful time in my life, uh, but it was also the most cathartic and transformative time in my life as well. Because just as there was a time in my life when the bulimia was not who I was anymore, and I finally realized that, there was one day when I just got up and I looked in the mirror and I just cried and cried and cried and cried. And I realized that all of this pain was just all of the grief that I was holding on to from the death of my mother, but all of the, um, all of the, the death and the destruction and, and all of the pain that I'd been holding all of my life had just kind of come to a head in this dark night of the soul. And after six weeks of this, I looked at myself and I said, this is not who I am. Something shifted within me and it was just like, it, it wasn't like really profound. It was just, there was a subtle shift. And all of a sudden it was almost like I'd been enclosed in a dark, in a dark, really dark, dark room with no light. And then somebody just kind of poked a hole in that box and there was a little bit of light that shone through. And it was enough for me to start on a path of transformation that I'd never done before. I never ever would have predicted that I would be on this path. And so I just started to um, search for solutions that would bring me closer to, to me, to my soul. And so I got into NLP. I studied NLP and thinking that I was also a, a sport coach at that point, I thought that it would help me with my sport coaching, help people get over their negative beliefs. I had no idea that it was actually going to be so transformative for me. And so I, I went into the basic practitioner program and I was so hungry for more after that because I was so transformed that I went into the master NLP program and it just, it just shot my personal growth through the roof. And then I just went on this, I was, I was hungry for more. And so the whole year of 2012, I basically checked out of life and I, um, you know, I, uh, this, the whole thing about my, my podcast is unplugging from status quo. And so that's what I did. I basically unplugged from life, status quo, from, from what I considered status quo in my own life at that point. And I plugged into me. I plugged into my heart, my soul. And through that, I, I went on this path of healing and I, I attended retreats and workshops and um, I read books. I was a voracious reader the whole year of 2012, just, just learning about me, getting to know who I was. And through that process, through, and there was a lot of pain through that because there was a lot of healing that was involved. But what, what emerged on the other side was the authentic me. And I know that that sounds kind of cliche because that's something that a lot of people speak about these days, but it's, in my case, it really was true. It was the, the authentic me. It's the, it's the passionate me. It's the me that I've always been. So it's not really any different than who I've always been, but it's the me that is not trapped in the pain anymore. It's the me that sees the pain as a gateway for purpose and for passion and for compassion and for more love. And rather than being stuck in those places. Now I see those places as fuel for action 
that is more transformative rather than, you know, projecting pain on others. So it's, it's more not only transformative, but it unites. So what I've come to realize through my own journey is that underneath all of the pain and all of the grief, there's always love. And I believe that that applies to every single one of us. And because of the culture that's been created to separate us from our feelings and love and compassion, we've, we've, uh, our consciousness is kind of fragmented in a way that we've lost touch with who we really are. But who we really are, we really are loving beings who care about one another, ourselves, the planet, animals, you name it. We are caring beings. And it's just returning to that place that is so empowering for transformative action. And that's that's what I uncovered through my own personal journey. And now I'm so passionate about that because I see how it's transformed my life and how it's enriched it. And I am passionate about... Um, about inspiring others, not about guiding others or leading others. I don't believe in that, but I believe in inspiring. We all have a story to share. And I believe that through the power of story that we can inspire one another to just feel, this is what I say, feel, heal, and be real. And it's that's really the key to um, an authentically expressed life that makes a difference on, in the world. So that's kind of my long-winded answer to your question. <laughs> Um, I was trying to think of something funny to say in response to that, but most of them just came to my mind as insulting. So we'll move on. <laughs> uh, um, now, I, I, again, reading your book right in the beginning, the disclaimer uh, of the, the manifesto, as you mm -hmm. have labeled it, um, you note that it's not a how-to manual designed to dumb you down with mimetic answers. Anything in this document that may appear as an answer is simply a step towards another question. Now, I find that very curious because I push myself when I can to, to try and live that way, to always be trying to find the next question, to, to try and take what I have just learned and maybe not know the answer, but to then have another avenue to explore. But we live in a culture, in a society and even in areas of the world that aren't as technologically advanced or stable as ours is here in Canada, North America, people want that immediate answer. They want, this is the problem, this is the solution, let's move forward. So isn't it counterintuitive to say, you're not going to get an answer, but you will get another question? I don't know if it's counterintuitive. I would say it's counterintellect. I think intuitively we do know all the questions and all the answers. And I think that that's, uh, it's just, it's a play on words that is so key. I think when we say counterintuitive, we're negating that part of us that's limitless. And uh, our intuition is beyond our five senses, but it's the intellect that wants the quick fix answer. Quick fix answer. And so yeah, I would say that it's counter intellect rather than counter intuitive. I don't know if that's answering your question, but that's where I'm going. <laughs> that's my answer. I'm sticking with it. <laughs> All right. Better than the politicians I have to deal with. We'll say that. <laughs> uh, now, you and I, prior to the show, were talking a bit about fear and anxiety. And that's something that comes up uh, through your book, uh, The Subject of Fear. 
uh, as I mentioned to you, and as I've been uh, very publicly open about, is I do have generalized anxiety disorder, a, a condition I've had my entire life, and it, it very much defined me up until a few years ago um, when I learned, I'd, I'd say almost to just accept it as part of who I am and be comfortable with the fact that I'm a little bit different in that way. Um, but I think it's interesting when we talk about fear, and this is something that you go into, and I'd like to uh, to explore this concept with you more, of how fear, and it's not always fear we recognize, but that general fear of the unknown, of something in particular, of a societal norm, of failure, of, of whatever, drives our actions on a day-to-day -day basis. How do we help people see that fear does hold such power over us as individuals and as a society at large? Wow. Wow. That is a million dollar question. And I don't know if I have a million dollar answer. Well, I've got I... $5. So let's, let's work <laughs> on that one. Yeah. How do we show people that fear has a death grip on them? Um, you know, I, I think that the only this, okay. So this is, this is the first thing I always go with whatever downloads from the universe, if you want to call it. And so this is what's coming up for me is I realize that we can't change anybody. We don't have the power to change anyone. We have the power only to change ourselves, to transform ourselves. I don't even want to call it change because we never really change. Our core essence always remains the same, but we really just expand into more of who we are. And I believe that the only way to inspire others is to just, as Gandhi said, be the change that we wish to see in the world. So if I think about what it is that I want to see in the world, I want to see more love, more joy, more compassion, more passion, more purpose, more authentic expression, more creativity, um, more unity. I want to see all of that. And the only way that I can ever hope to see that in the world is if I can be that myself. And so that is what I'm always aspiring to be in my own life. Now, whether I succeed or not is another question. There's some days obviously that, um, you know, I'm more successful than others as, as we all are. Uh, and I believe that the only way that we can inspire others to perhaps even know that they're trapped in fear is if they see someone who is not trapped in fear or if we have conversations where we feel safe enough to expose our vulnerability, like the fact that you so openly speak about your anxiety is really beautiful and it's empowering not only for yourself, but for others as well. And I feel like if we lived in a culture where we felt more safe in expressing who we are, our fears, anxieties, our our pain, our, our sadness, all of that, then a lot of it would just disperse. But, you know, we, it brings me back to what I said earlier about we live in a culture that really, um, it, it, we compartmentalize feelings. So we label them. Some are good, some are bad, some are, you know, it's just, it's ridiculous. And, and rather than just accepting that it's all okay. Now, I, that leads me to a line of thought, and this is something I was looking at, and I, and I was talking with, uh, uh, talking about with, uh, with Kate, my partner, who uh, is a, a social outreach worker. Um, so we're both sort of in that 
uh, left hemisphere in terms of careers, but uh, we are both very curious about these subjects. And something that I often believe is that a lot of these um, emotions and feelings, which, which you label as separating us from the important things in life, so you list them as conformity, consumption, judgment, fear, addiction, lies, and indifference, uh, and I believe grief is kind of tied into that as well. Mm-hmm. In my experience, all of these things, when left unchecked, when when we allow them to fester, lead to anger. Um, and, and to quote Yoda, anger leads to hate. And it's mm-hmm. people may laugh at the fact that I'm quoting a movie, but I, I truly believe that statement. And as animal activists or advocates... It's something that we're seeing on a near daily basis from those within the movement, from those without the movement, from those who support us to those who oppose us. And that's something that I continuously struggle to understand is that level of anger and hate that evolves out of these conversations. Uh, so to really sort of launch from this point uh, it, it, further into the subject, how do you define or, or how do you explain that movement from these more base emotions, or I guess you could call them reactive emotions, into anger and therefore hate? Mm, that's a really good question. Very powerful question. And it's one I can, I can speak to from personal experience because I've been there. I think that there's, you know, as I've mentioned, you know, I'm an empath. I've always been very sensitive to the pain in this world. And I've never been one of these people who has stuck my head in the sand. So, I mean, I went vegetarian at the age of 12 and I had, I had wicked battles with my father who was a voracious meat eater. And as a competitive swimmer, he was always trying to push meat on me before every swim meet. And it was a battle. It was a constant battle because we're indoctrinated into this culture that just pushes us to, and it's, I use the word separation, but it separates us from, from the love that we have in, innately for all life, for all living beings. And, um, and so, so I had this battle with my father for years. And then it wasn't until it was 1999 that I, uh, uh, I was eating free range eggs at this time. I went to a local farmer and I bought a dozen eggs, I cracked one open and there was blood in it. And all of a sudden it was like another light bulb went on. It's like, oh my God, this is an unborn embryo. And I was like, I can't do this anymore. I, I can't do this. I can't eat eggs. I can't eat cheese. I'm going vegan. Just like from, from it was just that, that one incident, even though I knew all this stuff. So I knew it in my head, but all of a sudden it went from my head to my heart, that 14 inch gap between the head and the heart. It just sunk. It became visceral. And I changed overnight. And as soon as I changed overnight, then I started to seek out all sorts of information and <clears throat> primarily from PETA. Mm. So that I was, I was exposed to meet your meat, which is a pretty brutal movie to watch. Uh, and I, I didn't, I didn't hide from any of it. And it was like swallowing the red pill uh, using the the metaphor of the Matrix movie. You know, I swallowed that pill. I went down the rabbit hole and it was like pain overload. And all I felt was anger, which turned into hatred. And then I became, that's when I became the activist that, the type of activist that you're talking about is is the the projection-based activist where I felt so much pain. The only way that I could release it was through these uh, these 
activist experiences where I would be shouting at people, you know, the fur asshole and stuff like that, you know, and it's, and, but you know what, when I, when I left these, when I was in these events and I was surrounded by like-minded people who were filled with pain and rage and they just wanted to express it however they could, it felt good. But as soon as I went home, I felt like shit. I don't know whether you have to edit that out. I do not. I swear frequently. (laughs) Okay. I felt like shit. I really did. It didn't make me feel any better because I wasn't addressing the pain that was inside of me. And so I feel like what I've come to realize, and, and it wasn't until 2010 when I lost my mother and I had to address all of that stuff that had never been fully addressed that I realized that underneath everything, underneath the anxiety, underneath depression, underneath anger, underneath hatred, underneath all of it is grief. It always comes down to the same thing. It's always grief that's unexpressed. And underneath the grief, once we peel back that layer, like once we get to the grief and we allow ourselves to grieve, underneath that is love. And so it's uncovering, it's it's like we, it's like layer after layer after layer after layer. It's like we only grieve what we love. And if we don't express that grief, it manifests in all of these ugly ways. Like I call it emotional immaturity and I'm just as guilty of it as everybody else. It's like, I don't know what to do with these emotions. So I'm just gonna, I'm gonna blame you. I'm gonna shame you. I'm gonna be angry at you. I'm gonna just barf my projected unhealed wounds on you. and it really just causes more division. And I think we all know that in our hearts, that that kind of activism just causes more division. I mean, who wants to join a movement that's filled with anger and pain and hatred, right? So I feel like, and this is again, through my own personal experiences, as well as a number of the people that I've interviewed for my own podcast, I get to this, we talk about the the roots of uh, emotions a lot of the time. And over and over and over again, I realize that I am not alone and that underneath the anger and all of these emotions is grief. And underneath the grief is the love. And if we can get to the love, then all of the emotions that are above it the grief, the anxiety, the depression, the anger, all of that stuff, that then becomes fuel for positive action, transformative action, rather than us projecting it onto somebody else. So it's tricky though, it's hard. It means you have to go into your pain and nobody wants to, I mean, there's enough pain in the world that we, you know, we really don't want to look at our own. So it's kind of a warrior path of transformation to actually be courageous enough to, to go into that pain to uncover what's below it so that we can become more, um, without sounding too kooky, but love-based activists rather than anger and shame-based activists. And then we become more effective because then we just unify instead of divide. Now, I I actually spoke uh, with a psychologist about this who's, who happens to be a Beaver supporter um, out of uh, California, Dr. Heidi Perryman. And... Uh, when we talked about anger, she made the interesting statement, which I think is very akin to yours, is anger can fuel you, it can start your passion, it can inflame you, but it can't carry you, it can't sustain mm-hmm. you. And that's, I think, is very similar to what you just said. Now, the, the logical next step in this, this discussion would be, what do we do with the anger? And I, th- I, I feel like that's where people run into the wall. 
We, we talk with very intelligent people through our social media, through our membership, through our support base on, on a daily basis. Yet you still see that reactive anger being used in comments, in posts, on social media, uh, in news articles, and in their day-to-day -day actions. So how do we say anger is healthy, it's normal, it's good, but at a certain point, you need to be able to let it go? How do we... I almost guide people to that concept and and frankly how do they do it like in a one two three step process if possible oh wow that's a brilliant question as well um yeah i mean i obviously i can only speak from my own personal experience uh and but you know like i think about okay let's think about gandhi okay gandhi you know we all think that he was all love and light but he wasn't he was pissed off that's what motivated him to catalyze so much change in the world the difference between you know, Gandhi and, and the, the, a typical activist waving a placard in front, of, in front of somebody's face is that he allowed those feelings to move through him in a way um, where he felt safe in doing so, so that it could be transformed into um, the, the, the fuel required for more productive transformation, let's say that. And for me, what I've noticed is that I still feel it. Like there's no doubt about it. Like uh, at my core, I still feel the rage. I still feel the anger. I still get so upset when I read some of the things that are going on in the world for animals, for humanity, for the planet, like for all of us, really for all life. We just live in a, I, I want to live in a life affirming world, but we seem to live in the total opposite. So instead of, projecting it because of what I have allowed myself to go through. And it took, you know, it took the, the catalyst of my mother's death to actually bring me to this point. I now have tools to deal with it. So um, for me, I use, uh, uh, I always make sure that I'm in a safe space. And I think that this is really, really key is that judgment is for me, probably the, the the most widespread pervasive form of violence out there. A lot of us fear being our authentic selves, like really expressing ourselves totally, completely vulnerably because we're afraid of judgment. So that's what we have to avoid that. We have to avoid a place of judgment and be, make sure that we're in a safe space so that we can really, really feel what we need to feel. And it means being in like-minded community that's not necessarily going to engage what you're expressing, but that's just going to support and hold it. So, I mean, for me, it's always been in workshop and retreat settings, but um, cathartic release is really great. So that's like screaming, raging, dancing. It's just like getting into your body and just letting it go. Because it's, you could, the thing about anger is that, I, I'm sure we all know this, is that you really feel it in your body. It's really in your body and it needs to be expressed through your body. And I feel like once that happens and whether it's out in nature by yourself or in a retreat setting or with like-minded community, like I said, that's not going to engage it, but instead support it. It's all good, but just get it out, get it out. So it doesn't become ugly and mean. And once it's out, then I find that it transforms itself into something that's more positive. The passion, it turns into passion. And that passion becomes um, a source of creativity. So 
that's when, at least in my own experience, is that once that anger is out, it's transformed into passion. And then I can start coming up with creative solutions. What can I do? Well, I could write this manifesto. I can create a podcast. Um, I can inspire others to think more critically and love more openly and, and just, um, and, and know that they're safe and not alone. And that's basically what's led me on this path is I've been through it all. I have felt the anger and the rage. I've been in such a dark place. Like in 2007, my partner almost left me because I was feeling destroyed by the, the ongoing seal slaughter out, out east. You know, it was just, it was destroying me. And I couldn't cope with it. I didn't know what to do with it. I would rage and rage and rage. And then she would confront me. And then all I would do is cry because there was so much grief underneath. So I know the pain. I know the pain. But the only way to deal with the pain is to, um, is to go into it, express it, feel it viscerally, like really, really feel it. And I'm saying this with so much passion because I understand it. And you have to really like, I don't know, like, you see people pounding on pillows and stuff like that, but scream and scream in the woods. That's what I do sometimes. Like there was one time I was walking my dogs um, when it, since I, when I recently moved out to BC last year, I was walking my dogs in a beautiful forest. And then I just rounded a, a corner and I walked into the, the, the most horrifying clear cut that I'd ever seen in my life. And it looked like a moonscape. It just destroyed my soul right from the inside. And um, seriously, Michael, I just, I could barely cope with it. And I just started to wail. I started to wail and I just thought, okay, I need to express this. And I just fell on my knees, literally. And I started to cry and I started to rage and I started to swear and everything just came out. It just, and I was exhausted by the end of it. But then I thought, okay, when I got back in the car and I was driving home, I thought, what can I do about this? What can I do about this so that this doesn't keep on happening? And because I'd gotten rid of all of the shit, it turned into transformative action. It turned into a really powerful blog post that um, really inspired a lot of people. So it's, it's, I mean, that's all I can offer is like, feel it, feel it, feel it, feel it, but don't barf it out on somebody else. Feel it in a safe place so that I can be transformed into something more powerful. Be like Gandhi. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. You're listening to Defender Radio. I am Brad Gates, owner of Gates Wildlife Control. Do you have raccoons or squirrels living in your attic? Did you know that the hole in your roof is letting water in? Your insulation is being ruined and they could be chewing on your electrical wiring? Protect your biggest investment. We will come to your house and provide you with a no-obligation free estimate. Please visit our website at gateswildlifecontrol.com or dial 416-750-9453. Have you ever heard a coyote sing? Did you know that coyotes are also called North America song dogs? They communicate through unique howls, yips, and barks. At Coyote Watch Canada, we're committed to fostering peaceful coexistence for communities and their wildlife neighbors by building compassionate wildlife communities, one community at a time. Please visit us at coyotewatchcanada.com for more information and tips about this amazing Keystone species. 
Beaver dams help clean water, promote songbird diversity, encourage fish populations, and create better soil and a cleaner environment. Beavers are good for Canada, but will we be good to them? Find out more at furbearerdefenders.com and give a damn about beavers. This is Defender Radio. We're back with more of our in-depth and revealing interview with Deb Ozarko. Talking about anger is always of interest to me because I uh, am in complete agreement with you. Um, the best way to combat anger is with love. It's opposite. Um, mm-hmm. And I truly believe that. And I, I, I too am a very introverted person. I'm very comfortable being by myself, being quiet most of the time. Um, and when I am out social, it's often an effort for me. Um, and there are a couple of really good books on introversion. I encourage anyone to read who has someone in their life that's introverted and doesn't understand what it's like. Um, but one of the aspects of it that I find very curious, and this is something that is taught in many religions, it's taught in many spiritual circles, and it's taught in, in therapy as well, is forgiveness. And to me, it is an integral part of compassion is, and this is something that I struggle with all the time, to be completely honest, because I'll go to the meetings um, where it's me, eight trappers and politicians who automatically agree with the trappers. And I'm sitting there, they're talking about how they kill animals and how it's humane and how it's good. And I'm trying to, to defend our position, trying to provide a different insight. Sometimes I get somewhere, often I don't. Um, but at the end of the day, I need to be able to, and I know this about myself, I need to be able to forgive these men and women who are killing animals. Even though I, I it angers me, it, it makes me sad, it upsets me in many ways, what they do. I know that allowing that anger and that feeling to evolve into hate won't change anything but that single act of compassion of forgiveness of being able to move past it is ultimately powerful but that i feel is something that is often lost when we talk about these things that Mm -hmm. taking love that next step into forgiveness how do you like to communicate that idea to people that idea that part of compassion is forgiveness, even of those who have wronged you in some of the most horrible ways. Wow, that is, oh my God. Yeah, that's a tough one. That's a tough one. Well, I brought you here to bring answers. <laughs> um, so I, I fully I am expect not a them. guru. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just somebody who fumbles my way through life and has discovered <laughs> some interesting things along the way. But yeah, forgiveness, that's that's a really, really, really awesome, awesome question. And it just brings me, the, the first thing that comes into my mind is um, the circumstances around my mother's death. And I'm not going to get into the whole thing, but um, my father had died uh, a number of years before my mother and she got involved with a man who uh, was very challenging for my sisters and I and basically divided the family. And for the longest time, I blamed him for my mother's death. And I had to reach a level of forgiveness. I knew that I needed to reach a level of forgiveness in order to free myself, liberate myself actually, uh, to do 
the work that I needed to do because I, I feel like when we attach to somebody else because we don't like what they're doing, it upsets us, it hurts us. It it actually, when we don't forgive someone, we're, we're at, I mean, you've heard, probably heard this saying, I think it's like, if we don't forgive someone, it's like, uh, what's the saying? It's like, you want to poison somebody, but you're drinking the poison. I don't know. I can't remember how it goes, but it's like having a fish hook in our heart. <laughs> I, and I'm using a, an exercise that we did in NLP, a, a forgiveness exercise. And that was the metaphor that they used was a fish hook in the heart. And, um, but the hook is not attached to the other person. It's attached to us. And so how do we remove the fish hook? The fish hook is removed through forgiveness, but it's not easy. We can't do that mentally. I can say, I forgive you. I forgive you. I forgive you. But if in my body I'm, I'm saying, fuck you, um, it's not working. There's an incongruency. It has to be, uh, on a visceral level. And so there was just, um, I don't know, I, it, when I think about forgiveness, when I think about uh, my mother's partner and forgiving him, it was just all of a sudden one day I realized that he was just a guy who was trapped in his own pain doing the best that he could in his life with the resources that he had. And all of a sudden that perspective shift was enough to, to cause me to forgive. Now with people who deliberately profit from uh, the pain and suffering of animals, that one's more challenging. I feel like I still struggle with that one as well. Like what is it that causes these people to do these things and so unconsciously and so egotistically and selfishly? I realize that they're, they're people who are struggling as well and that they're doing the best that they can with the resources that they have, but it's the arrogance that makes it so hard. And so for for that, what I re, what I've come to realize is that, um, you know, I know that uh, there's a lot of self help books and and uh, spiritual books that say forgiveness, forgiveness, forgiveness. And um, I got to the point where I just couldn't read anymore; it was confusing me, and so I ditched all the books. I gave them all to the Salvation Army, and I thought, <laughs> I guess I just have to find my own path. And what I, here's what I've come to realize is that it's okay to be an asshole. It's okay to be an asshole as long as you don't do you don't come at it with malicious intent. So there are times when I really get angry at what people are doing. And it's not about forgiving them, but it's about forgiving myself for judging myself for being angry with them. And when I reach that level of forgiveness within myself, all of a sudden I don't feel that same anger towards them anymore. So hopefully that makes sense. So when I look at forgiveness, uh, especially towards um, those who I'm projecting anger and hatred towards, because I'm still not exempt from that. I'm still working on that one. I think that's going to be a continual work in process. I think when we care, that's just the way it is. I look at, it's okay, there's those feelings inside of me, and I know that they're not serving anyone. They're not serving me. They're not creating any kind of unity or love, which I want to see in the world. Um, so what can I do with that? And the only thing that I can do is forgive myself for feeling those feelings and know that that's just a part of the human experience. And I don't need to attach myself to what they're doing. I need to do something that creates something better so that people don't even buy into that mindset anymore in the first place. So there again, a long-winded answer, um, but that's that's kind of what I've discovered. That's my go-to now for forgiveness is just really self-forgiveness more than anything else. And that for me is enough of, of a perspective shift that it keeps me on path. 
You know, I, I'm very disappointed. I was expecting all the answers. Uh, you, you think I ask these questions rhetorically? No. Um, I actually, you know, what you just said made me think of a quote you have at the very beginning of the book from Buckminster Fuller. You never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I couldn't I, say that one better myself. Uh, well, Buckminster Fuller said it. Exactly. Yeah. So who gets to enhance that one? <laughs> exactly. Um, now, uh, moving back towards the the book, um, as I read this, um, you know, it's, it's it, as I said, it's it's beautifully designed. It's got a lot of wonderful ideas in it. And then you've got a picture, and I'm going to order this shirt when you get them big enough for me. <laughs> it's it's revolution, and you have reversed the four of the first five letters, so it shows love in yeah. it. Uh, and I I love the design. Um, Thank you. And it makes me think of something my father always said and still says. Um, and, and keep in mind that while I am somewhat left-leaning in many ways, I grew up in a very conservative household. He was a banker and a businessman, uh, still is. And he would always say, let's not have a revolution. Let's have an evolution. Mm. And that... As an adult, as a child, I thought it was just nonsense, of course. But as an adult, it has really been a big part of my life in that you can't force change upon people. No. You really can't do that. And the example I'll often give people is prohibition uh, as a historical reference point. The moral uh, people of the day decided that alcohol consumption was an immoral activity and therefore should be banned, thereby forcing change upon people. And it led to the creation of the most powerful underground community of all time, uh, really outside of religion. And to this day, the United States and parts of Canada feel the impacts of the syndicates that were created in that time. Uh, and depending on your historical perspective, you can even say it led to the rise and fall of politicians, presidents, uh, entire economies. So when we talk about revolution... Um, and, and even, you know, you talk about status quo crushing, they're mm -hmm. very aggressive words, mm -hmm. but the intent is not aggressive. No. Um, so how is that something that you, um, I can't even think of the right word now. I want to say compensate, but it's not right, but that you kind of explore with people. So you, you use terms that by definition are correct, but by, uh, emotive definition, are often almost the opposite. How do you really kind of move people? It's like we're talking about a revolution made of love. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, okay, well, let's go to status quo crushing first. There have been times when I've been uncomfortable with that title. The crushing thing is is not something that I necessarily feel super comfortable with, but because it's kind of with me now, I've kind of... <laughs> I've kind of accepted it, status quo crusher. But for me, status quo crusher is really about, um, it's about crushing status quo in a way, well, it's mainly, really, it's just about expanding out of status quo. But, you know, status quo expander doesn't really have the same ring to it. So, I don't know, <laughs> status quo crusher is going to stay for now until I find something that's a little less aggressive because... Aggression is not really my thing. I want to inspire critical thought and I have no, I make no qualms about uh, just really speaking my mind and being very, very forthright about my, my words. I want to challenge people. 
um, to think more critically. Uh, now, the revolution thing is, uh, I'm just looking at the page that I wrote here, and that was a that was another word that I thought, now, do I use this word or not? And I thought, well, let's let me just figure out what it means exactly, because I like the word. And what I found is that, uh, I'm just going to read from my manifesto here, it says, a revolution is a battle between the future and the past. And when enough of us dare to become who we've always been meant to be, the more beautiful world we know in our hearts is, will no longer be an elusive dream. It will become the reality that has always been our birthright. So for me, a revolution really is a battle between the future and the past. I don't like the word battle, um, but I guess I'm trying not to get hung up on linguistics. I'm trying to really just convey a message, like you said, and hopefully people don't get too hung up on the words and they really just chunk up and and uh, accept the message that I'm trying to convey. Um, so hopefully that answers your question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, you can see I'm kind of squirming a little bit. These are words that I'm not super comfortable with mm. either. But what I want to do is convey, ultimately, I just want to convey a really powerful message. And I think that the only way to do that is through powerful words. Well, and I think that is the uh, the struggle that many writers uh, like us have, frankly, mm-hmm. is taking that, this is what I mean, and this is what I said, and <laughs> how do I compensate them? But it does lead, uh, again, into an area that I, I, I kind of hope will make you uncomfortable, because that's fun, uh, <laughs> as an interviewer. Uh, again, growing up in a conservative household, um, both politically and, and morally, I was often sort of showing facts of life in ways that other people may not. So discussions of things like war were very real in my home. And and I'm a history buff. Um, I'm familiar with many of the modern wars that our countries uh, in the United States, Canada, Great Britain, the Western world really have been involved in. And I started out my time as a journalist, as a crime reporter. Um, so seeing the, the rough things people do to each other, uh, seeing the meanness of, of the world. And that, in part, led me to believe in compassion as a solution. But at the same time, there are those uh, who, who are not re- ready or able to follow that. And a quote that I, I quite often go back on, and this is an internal dialogue I have with myself, is from Winston Churchill, who said, We sleep safely at night because rough men stand ready to visit violence on those who would harm us. So when we look at this world that you and I and many, many others want to create, one full of love and compassion, and we look at the reality of a great deal of violence and hatred and anger, uh, greed, I think, is uh, often underestimated uh, factor in war and political strife. How do we reconcile the reality that right now you and I are able to have this discussion about love and finding solutions to anger and compassion because there are those standing before us who will do everything it takes, including give their own lives to prevent violence on us. Hmm. Wow. Uh, I just want to live in a world where that's not even necessary. I really do. I mean, that's that's my ultimate goal is to live in a world where that's not necessary. And I, I believe that, that it is a possibility. I don't know whether it's going to be in this lifetime, in this incarnation as Debo Zarco, but I believe that it's it's possible because it is our in our essential nature. You know, it's 
the whole violence thing is not who we are. But it comes back to the separation that I talk about. You know, we just, it starts so early on, as soon as we're birthed into the world, it's, we're separated from the essence of who we are. We're, we're enculturated by our parents' fears and their unhealed wounds and their beliefs. And, and then it's just perpetuated in the educational system. And then it just, and we never feel safe. So it comes down to safety. And so then it, we, we, it just manifests. It just keeps growing. It's like the, you know, the, the snowball effect growing and growing and growing to the point where now we feel so unsafe that we need uh, people to defend us from one another. I mean, I think we're the only species on the planet that feels unsafe around one another. And to me, that's insane. It shouldn't be that way. And I don't really know, like, I don't really have an answer to the whole war thing. Sorry to disappoint you with this one. (laughs) (laughs) I just think that, I mean, the only thing that I do is I am so aware of everything that's going on in the world. And because I'm so sensitive, I had to leave the city and I had to move to a really, really small coastal town in British Columbia that's um, pretty isolated. You know, like we can only get here by float plane and ferry and that's to protect myself from all of, like I don't feel safe either. It's to protect myself from all of the judgment and the, the, the physical and the mental violence and emotional violence that's out there that has, that is not uh, authentic to who we are. And by disconnecting from that in my own way, I'm able to connect to who I am in a greater way. And that way I'm able to, like I said, follow my path and my calling and to inspire others to remember that part within themselves. But, um, I don't know if I'm even remotely answering your question anymore. (laughs) The whole war thing. I mean, we've got wars on everything. I think I write this in my manifesto too. Wars on germs, wars on cancer, wars on this, wars on that. And, and it's that, that language is just, again, so aggressive what you're saying, you know, earlier about it being aggressive. And I remember, um, I think it was mother Teresa who said, uh, don't invite me to, um, an anti-war rally. I will, I will attend a peace rally, but not an anti-war rally. Mm. And I think it's just, it's, it's a perspective shift that we really need to have is we have to stop creating these wars on things and instead look at things from a different perspective. And I know that in my own life, and, and that's really all I have a certain degree of control over is I needed to do what I needed to do and extract myself from, you know, city life so I could live in a place that's surrounded by nature and animals and wildlife and occasional clear cuts. But, you know, I, I, I had to, I had to do that for my soul in order to really stay on purpose and stay passionate about what I need to do, my little, my little contribution to the world and making it better rather than focusing on all of the violence that's out there. So there you go. More questions, no answers. (laughs) <laughs> I, I was really hoping we were going to evolve each other during this conversation and uh, get past that whole nonsense of no answers. But I suppose I can learn to live with the disappointment. <laughs> if uh, it inspires more questions, then that's a good thing. Because then yes. that's that's inspiring critical thought. And that's what we all need more of rather than conformist thought. Yes. And I think that's when you look at it from a historical perspective, the issue has often been that we stopped asking questions and Mm -hmm. began um, giving ourselves answers, which uh, were not 
helpful necessarily. Um, and, and just of a, a interesting note, I actually moved from the suburbs and I lived in a rural area at one point, but I moved from the suburbs into a major city. Um, and I think you and I are very similar in a lot of ways. And I find it interesting that your solution was moving um, into the, the, the countryside, into the rural part of the world. Uh, for me, it was moving into a city. Uh, oddly, as an introvert, I find it much more comfortable. Um, but, uh, you know, there's lots of different little ins and outs. And I think it's important to remember that everyone is different. Exactly. Yes. And to embrace that too. Embrace the difference. Embrace the the weirdo inside. I mean, because that's, that's who we're meant to be. We're meant to be different. We're meant to be unique. And, you know, like I've actually, it's, it's where I live is more, I have to say more wilderness than anything else. It's not rural. I've lived in rural areas and I feel more unsafe in rural areas than I do in city areas, mainly because of all of the hunting and trapping and, and, uh, you know, just, Yahoo activity that seems to happen in in rural areas, at least in rural Ontario when I was there. But out here, it's a different, I don't know, it's a different vibe. It's it's the BC coast. Uh, people who come to the Sunshine Coast where I live are mainly artists, creators, people who are basically fed up with the whole uh, rushed lifestyle that has been perpetuated and normalized in city culture. So it's a very different vibe out here. It's very healing. And, but again, like you said, I mean, it doesn't really matter whether it's a city, the country or a wilderness setting. If you feel more comfortable there, then that is, that is what needs to be embraced is what, what's authentic for you. Definitely. And it is uh, much easier for zombie proofing. Um, <laughs> now, now, now to really wrap up, I want to uh, talk about one thing we haven't talked about. Uh, we've talked about anger and love, compassion, uh, fear. And personally, the way I find a way to sort of keep going every day, um, you know, there's, there's that logical side of my brain, which I've been taught to embrace, but not, uh, not ignore the emotional side. Uh, so the logical side of my brain says that the ripple effect is taking place. I sit and I write about how we can save one coyote, one raccoon uh, from trapping. And when we're successful with that one, it does not make up for the thousands of others that are killed violently. But it creates that ripple effect, that momentum of if it worked here, it could work elsewhere. And people see that and say, hey, this could work. And every single time it makes that little bit bigger of a ripple. Um, and that's the logical side of my brain. The emotional side of my brain is people getting hit in the nuts in YouTube videos. Mm. I seek out reasons to smile and laugh. Um, I watch stand-up comedy. I read funny books. Christopher Moore is my hero for that as an author. Um, how, how important is it to find those things in the world? And, and again, I'm not talking big picture emotional responses, but just on a daily basis to find a reason to laugh, to, to just let go of everything that is wrong and look and embrace one thing that is ridiculous and happy. Oh, that is a brilliant question to end with. Wow. Thank you for I, asking I, that one, Michael. I, I do this for a living. I know what I'm doing. Come on. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs> I am... Uh, huge supporter, um, advocate. I am a huge advocate for ruthless self-care, 
ruthless. Like it's it's critical. And this was the one thing that was missing for me when I was one of those rage-based activists is I was so enmeshed in the pain of the world that I felt like if I did something for myself, then the world was going to be suffering more as a result of the fact that I wasn't doing something for it. So what I've come to realize through this this uh, unexpected journey of uh, awakening, we'll call it, which is just a, it's a continuum um, that happened after my mother's unexpected death. Uh, I've realized the importance of self-care and it is important to seek out joy and laughter. And I tell you, man, I, um, I wrote a blog post uh, on my website about how being fuels doing and we don't do enough being even though we're human beings we've morphed into human doings and we never stop and that means usually our our left brain you know the rational brain is just constantly going but when we stop and we just to use that expression smell the roses it actually inspires us to connect to what's really authentic within us so that we come into our doing we we morph into our doing from a more solid place a a connected to because we're connected to our souls so for me for instance i live near the ocean whenever i feel like i'm starting to derail like if something's starting to really upset me i'll take a few deep breaths like there's just so much power in breath alone but i'll take a few deep breaths and then i'll take the dogs for a walk down to the ocean and then all of a sudden everything shifts that is so key. And whether it's watching, you know, silly kitten view- videos on YouTube, a walk by the ocean, a walk in the woods, you know, even a walk in an urban park setting, it makes no difference. Whatever works. Um, meditation is another thing that I never thought that I would get into because I had one of these crazy monkey minds, but it has saved me. Meditation has saved me. Yoga saved me. All these things that people talked about that I thought were just airy fairy woo-woo new agey before are now lifesavers. And whenever I feel connected to myself and feel more whole, I feel more purpose-driven, I feel more passionate, and I feel more um, inspired to do the work that I have been guided to do on my life path to, uh, to create a better world. So I, I'm, I'm all for it, Michael. I am all for it. Like laugh, laugh, do whatever you need to do. Dance, be silly, (laughs) pick your nose, (laughs) whatever, burp, I don't care. Whatever makes you laugh, whatever brings that feeling of joy inside of you. I mean, like I said to you earlier, we, we just adopted a puppy and, um, from the SBCA, I look at this little guy and I have so much love in my heart. You know, the other day, uh, my partner and I were talking about, um, oh God, one of the recent world events that is just so gut-wrenching and I don't even remember which one it was. Oh, I think it was the the earthquake in Nepal. We were mm, talking about yeah. that and the devastation there and just, just like, uh, anyway, the whole thing. It's always about the people that are killed, but what about all the animals too? And, you know, just like the whole picture, the whole picture just sucks. And we were both starting to go into that grief realm. And then um, the dogs just started playing and we had this little eight week old puppy who just, just, he just looked at us and it was like everything changed. And we realized what was really important in that very moment. And what was important in that moment was just feeling the love right then and there. And right in that moment and the joy, 
that just shifted everything. And it was like, okay, there's shit happening in Nepal, but um, you know what? What's important is right here, right now. And when I connect to what's here right now, it's going to help me connect to what's out there in a more productive and positive way. To learn more about Deb, hear her podcast, read her blog, or find her book, visit debozarko.com. That's the show for this week. I'd like to thank Deb for spending such a great hour with us and Brad Gates of AAA Gates Wildlife Control for his ongoing support of this program. Until next time, this is Michael Howie reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.